Our scripture this morning comes from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, these words of a psalm that may feel quite familiar to us, uh, we've taken these words to our lips at different points in our service already, and perhaps even in our life across many years, we ask that you would help us to know uh, how we might apply them to our lives and how we might be individuals in a community that inhabits them as we uh, are on our own pilgrimage spaces. So meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Christian Wyman is a poet, and he writes quite honestly and frankly about his own struggles as a person of faith in his book, uh, My Bright Abyss. He writes this, he says, to experience grace is one thing, to integrate it into your life is quite another. What I crave now is that integration, some speech that is true to the transcendent nature of grace, yet adequate to the hard reality in which daily faith operates. I love that faith because it calls us to be an honest group of people, honest individuals about our own struggles with God and about the difficulty of living life in a world like ours and lives like each of us have had. Most of us are likely feeling a similar impulse. We want some integration of faith into our real lives. We don't wanna live a life of pretend. We don't wanna live uh, in some Pollyanna type world. We want substance. We want grace that actually leans into the reality of this hard life that we find ourselves in. And it's interesting to me that this pandemic moment in which we are living, that it exposes us in different ways. Some of the ways we don't even like, right? We see fault lines in our lives that we perhaps weren't very familiar with because of all the props that are keeping us sustained, that we just get busy with in life. 
All of a sudden, we're in a moment when we see things about ourselves individually, our character that we may not like. We see things perhaps about our housemates that we don't like or don't enjoy. We recognize things institutionally, uh, even perhaps in our own churches that we're unhappy with. Or we recognize things in the world, in the culture broadly, or in our government that leave us concerned or uncertain. We want some integration of faith. And Psalm 121, I think, is a prayer for people that want that, uh, people like us. It's the second prayer in a series of prayers inside of the Psalms, uh, known as the Psalms of Ascent. And so these were prayers that typically would have been prayed on pilgrimage to Jerusalem during a feast season of Israel's life, where ordinary people left the comforts of their home, uh, the joys or the sorrows that would have been there at that particular moment, and they head off on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple worship that was meant to order their life in all of the other spaces of life. But like them and like we know, we easily begin to forget the rhythms of God's presence in the midst of ordinary life. And pilgrimage is a way of replenishing our imagination for the life that God wants us to live. And so they head off and they take up these psalms to their lips as a caravan or individually in different ways along the way, structuring and orienting their lives as pilgrims. One of the common features of pilgrims is that they recognize that life in this world is not settled. We have no permanent experience of God's kingdom presence and goodness. We get tidbits, we get an expression of it, we get a small experience, a taste of his kingdom come, but never in its fullness. A pilgrim remembers that. Think about your own experiences of coming and going in the context of your own life, your life as a pilgrim, in the place that you've been living in the last five months amidst joys and sorrows and concerns and hopes and dreams and hand washing and mask wearing. In this real life, you are a pilgrim. So the first question is, what catches your eye in the midst of your pilgrimage? That's where the psalm begins, Psalm verse 1, rather. The psalm opens up, I lift my eyes to the hills. I love the mountains. Stacy and I love vacationing in the mountains. We both grew up more or less in the realm of the Smoky Mountains or the Appalachian Trail. And so being a part of that space and looking upon it, is beautiful to us. We enjoy sitting in those spaces. We've taken trips to the Rockies where we've just enjoyed the grandeur of those very different types of mountain ranges from those back east where we have lived our lives. I could sit in a chair on a porch all day long and stare into the mountains. I find it soothing and relaxing. I could go on hikes every day as long as my energy would sustain me. And I just enjoy being in the midst of those spaces. But here's the thing, the psalmist is not on a vacation. The psalmist is not sitting on a porch looking at, staring upon the grandeur of the mountains. The psalmist is not even on a pleasure hike. This is pilgrimage. And for the pilgrims, these hills that they might have first seen upon moving toward Jerusalem present dangers, even physical dangers, because they might have well been the refuge of criminals and bandits who would hide out waiting for the pilgrims to take advantage of them 
along the way. So there's danger in the hills, if you would. And it's not just a source of potential physical danger on a real pilgrimage, it's also a source perhaps of spiritual danger because the mountain high places in ancient times were places of ultimately of, of idolatrous worship, right? Not of Yahweh, but some other deity, some other hope, some other way of making sense in the world. Something that competes with the words that, that God had given his people. And so the psalmist right off is aware of the fact that even on pilgrimage, we face distractions that would move our aim from Jerusalem to some other concern. And here, that's what's happening perhaps for the psalmist. Their eyes look up to the hills and maybe they imagine the threats and their heart and their imagination is drawn from that space of the Jerusalem worship that they're moving towards, that space that symbolically is uh, representative of God's world and our world meeting physically, truly, in such a way in the context of their worship that was meant to order every other aspect of their lives when they went home. We are no less on pilgrimage now. I think it's important for us to remember that. It's interesting when you look into the New Testament, uh, think of the letter of 1 Peter, for example, that we looked at earlier in the year. Uh, in that space of 1 Peter, Peter begins his very important letter reminding the congregations that would hear and read this letter then, but also now that you're strangers and exiles scattered about in the world. In other words, one of the things that Peter wanted the church of his day to remember is you're just not home. And whenever you're not home, you don't expect to live a settled life. You expect disruptions along the way. You expect perhaps danger or distractions, both physical and spiritual in nature. And so here in that context, the psalmist asks a very simple question. Where does your help come from? Where does your help come from? So here we are in our own midst of pilgrimage, right? And the terms have changed. The terrain is different. The horizon isn't what it was. All of the props, all of the ordinary ways of living life, even as a church, have been sort of kicked out from beneath us. And the very simple question that the Psalm presents us with is where does your hope come from? What do you look up to? Is it the strength and the beauty of a mountain vacation or really any vacation, right? Is it your ability to mitigate risk in all of its various forms of potential loss that might come your way? Is it your ability to navigate the spiritual dangers of a misdirected hope and dream or idea about the meaning of life? Where does your hope come from? Verse two is the callback response. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Pilgrims look beyond the horizon of their pilgrimage and its dangers as well as its opportunities to God's own self. Pilgrims, if you will, lock eyes with God, the real one, in the midst of their pilgrimage, in the midst of life in this real place that is sometimes filled with joys and sometimes filled with laughter and play and absolute enjoyment but is it other times filled with danger and risk and loss and sadness and sickness, poverty? 
Pilgrims look up from the horizon and they remember God's presence. They lock eyes with him. In verse 3, the psalmist begins to cultivate his own and perhaps the community's imagination around this God. Who is he? What is he like? Kidner in his commentary suggests that this first verse is not so much a settled experience of this God as much as it is a request of this God. In other words, oh God, do not allow our foot to slip in the midst of this pilgrimage. But whether we're thinking of this verse as a request of God or as an offering of praise to God, reflecting on his character, the psalmist has most definitively remembered that God is the creator who made heaven and earth. And so he's powerful, he's engaged, he's able to sort of intervene in the opportunities before us or in this context that might cause our feet to slip in some way. When I was reading this earlier preparing, I thought of Psalm 73, which speaks of feet slipping. There the psalmist says, surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, my foot almost slipped. It was a spiritual slippage of the foot, of heart and soul, maybe we could think of it that way. The psalmist in 73 admits that he envies those, those that do not know God. In other words, he's looking outside of his community, right? The community of those on pilgrimage to God and living their life ordered by the things that God has said or spoken, the hopes and the dreams that God offers. And he looks at all the other people of the world. And he sees that they seem to prosper, that life seems easy for them as he imagines them, that their life is filled with wealth, is filled with a carefree spirit and a carefree nature. And he envies that. He wants some of that kind of life. What would it be like to not be a person of faith? And when he looks across that horizon, he says, their life is easy. I want some of that. The psalmist saw their life as cushioned, as privileged in some real way. I think of this in the context of our gospel reading this morning, and we could put it in the frame of those words. The psalmist wanted, if you will, to store up treasure on the earth without ordering heart and soul and mind and body all of his life according to the presence of God, according to God's generous presence. I feel that way sometimes. Have you felt that way sometimes? Do you ever wonder what it might be like to feel a little more carefree, a little less conscious of God, a little bit wor less worried about God's presence? Of course you have. The psalmist in 73 will re-engage his pilgrimage in the context of worship as he goes into the temple and there encounters God. In our Psalm, Psalm 21, verses four to eight, begin to enlarge our imagination around the truth of who this God is for them, with them in the midst of their pilgrimage. The psalmist essentially reminds us that God sees you. He's aware of you. He keeps watch over Israel. God isn't a sleepy and disengaged God. He keeps moving with his promised kingdom, moving that word of promise forward one step at a time, even though in the midst of our pilgrimage quite often, it doesn't look that way and it certainly doesn't feel that way to us. Verse five, he watches over you. He brings shade to your right hand and the sun or the moon, these things can't interfere with God's presence and his good activity in our lives. In other words, the psalmist says, there is no space of human existence 
in which God is not present, in which he's not with you as one who keeps you from evil and keeps your soul. He keeps writing your story into the story that he is telling. Now, I often think that these kinds of hopes, this hope of God watching me or keeping me from evil or keeping my soul, what I want that to mean is that God protects me from loss in this life. That's what I want, and it's what you want. I know that because I've talked to a lot of you, and I know these are the common conversations of pastoral care when we encounter the props being knocked out from under you, right? You're getting older. You are uh, diagnosed with a sickness. You, are, uh, you discover socially and culturally the great enormous problems of racism, right? We encounter the brokenness of this world in a multifaceted ways. And the moment that happens, what we wish these verses meant is that we didn't have to experience sorrow. I don't have to experience loss. I could just live in one wealthy, prosperous moment after another for the duration of my life, my life itself being extended. But these promises of faith have never meant that for God's people ever. They've never looked like that. They didn't look like that in the context of Israel's life. They didn't look like that for sure in the context of Jesus's life. And as Jesus begins to talk with his disciples, at one point he looks at them near the ending of his own life as he prepares to die. He says, in the world you will have trouble. In this broken world, you will continue to have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Again, I want the overcoming of the world on the part of Jesus to mean that I don't have to pass through more trouble. And yet Jesus has just said the opposite, that you will have trouble, you will pass through troubles, but amidst these, I have overcome the world. So lean into the story of Jesus is the invitation. We're pilgrims, we're exiles, we're not home. Psalm 121 concludes rather with this beautiful and amazing promise of God's faithfulness. It's a bold statement. Verse eight, the Lord shall keep watch over your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist seems to urge the pilgrims that would take these words to their lips to embrace the long game of God's ultimate faithfulness. God is bringing his kingdom, a kingdom of shalom, a kingdom of peace and beauty and truth and justice and love and goodness for all, for all time. God is doing that, nothing is left out, and he excludes no part of your own life from the story that he is telling, the history that he is writing. It is all grace, his grace to you, his grace for you, moving you and the kingdom along, forward towards its conclusion. But it's the long game of faithfulness that's in view here. And it's that long game of God's faithfulness that allows us to live in the present moment of sorrow as persons of hope, as persons of goodwill, as persons who live by a very different logic than the logic of this world. Jesus ultimately takes pilgrimage to himself. We have the benefit of reading these words and taking them to our lips after we get to read the gospel story of how Jesus embodied them in the context of his own lives. Here, God in person in our world, he took up pilgrimage in our world. And if we can begin to wrap our minds around what that actually meant, it meant that God would take to himself 
the experiences of hard reality. He would not exclude his own experience in our world from an experience of his own experience of injustice. He would not remove himself from the pain even of death or the difficulty of death. In other words, he embraces physical and spiritual danger to his own self. The story of Jesus, of course, ends not in death or at the tomb, but with God raising him up. And as St. Paul says, giving him the name that is above all names. And it is that name that will endure forever because it is that reality of resurrection life that will endure forever. And so Jesus in our gospel writing this morning, he invites us to live by a very different logic, the logic of God's kingdom and not the logic of this broken world. Our temptation when we look at this world is to grasp, it is to be afraid, it is to be concerned about temporal things, about things like where will our next meal come from or how will we prepare for ourselves financially and so on and so forth. And so Jesus just very simply says, don't order your life by the wisdom of the financial world that you're familiar with, but order it by the kingdom of heaven. The world that God is bringing, which is not a zero-sum game of scarcity, but it's a world of God's abundance, his kingdom present in the person of Jesus, who himself, though God does not grasp at his godness, but gives his life up. He lives by the wisdom of heaven, and Jesus here invites his disciples to similarly live by that wisdom. We are pilgrims who look up and beyond the physical and the spiritual dangers of our own day and our own life to the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ, who has now given us the Holy Spirit and who with the Spirit leans with us into all the hard realities of this life. The things personally that we feel inside of our own stories that we wonder if they can ever come back together in a way that feels whole or makes sense, Jesus says yes into the things culturally or in and out of our own family or a set of relationships that feel broken beyond repair, Jesus says yes to the realities of brokenness that are experienced in profound ways in our world in the context of global poverty. Jesus says we can lean into these things by the logic of his kingdom. Jesus loves you and Jesus empowers you and empowers us to live a real life of grace in a real world of brokenness without ignoring these realities, without avoiding these realities, without embracing a zero-sum game as we think about these realities, but to live by grace, to love our neighbor as he has loved us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would meet us as we reflect on these words and how we might individually and collectively in our congregational lives and in our lives and our families and the homes in which we live, how we might embody these words, how when we look up to the hills that we would not be afraid, but we would remember truly that our help is in you, the maker of heaven and earth, who became flesh and who for our sake died and is risen and has filled us with the Spirit that we might live and order our days on earth very, very differently from all of the brokenness that we see around us. Would you meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.